Thelonious Monk, the High Priest of Bebop, would have been a hundred years old this month, October 2017. he had on jazz as both a musician and a composer is hard to overstate. Well, we decided to celebrate Monk's birthday with an episode about two jazz greats who are inheritors of his legacy. One has clocked seven decades in jazz. The other is just starting her second. One grew up on the East Coast, the other on the west. One plays sax, one plays bass and sings. The way you look at me when you think I'm not looking tells me Your heart's a sleeping giant from the bottom what you love before me I see But there's great crossover in their life stories and in their approaches to playing and composing music. I'm talking here about Esperanza Spalding and Wayne Shorter. I knew I was going to be dedicated to following this path of creative, the creative process all the way to the end of the line. And but I found out there's no end of the line. All you can do is cultivate and bring out what you're hearing based on your life and your dreams and your fears and your wishes. Bring it out the best you possibly can and then find the people in the world who will dig it. Because even if it's one in a million, that's still a lot of people who will like your music. I'm going to try a little improvisation of my own, weaving their tales together on this episode of What It Takes, a podcast about passion, vision, and perseverance from the Academy of Achievement. I'm Alice Winkler. Adame, this child is gifted. And I heard that enough that I started to believe it. If you have the opportunity, not a perfect opportunity, and you don't take it, you may never have another chance. It all was so clear. It, it was just like the picture started to form itself. There was no way in which a lie could prevail over the truth. Darkness over light, death over life. Every day I wake up and decide, today I'm going to love my life. Decide. My advice is, if they're going to break your leg once when you go in that place, stay out of there. <laughs> and then along come these differential experiences that you don't look for, you don't plan for, but boy, you better not miss them. Wayne Shorter came to prominence as a member of the Miles Davis Quintet in the mid-1960s. He had already played in Art Blakey's legendary band, The Jazz Messengers, and he would go on to create Weather Report, one of the greatest jazz fusion bands of the 70s and 80s. Dozens of his compositions are now jazz standards and have developed lives of their own in the hands of musicians around the world, including Esperanza Spalding. Esperanza Spalding recorded this piece, written by Wayne Shorter, for her fourth album. That's the one that followed her 2011 Grammy for Best New Artist. She arrived on the scene like an epiphany and has continued to bring new excitement and attention to jazz, not just as a performer, but also as a composer, like her hero, Wayne Shorter. So let's go now to their stories. Both Mr. Shorter and Ms. Spalding sat for interviews with the Academy of Achievement during the 2014 summit. Their interviews were done separately by journalist Gail Eichenthal, but they both talked at length about the places they came from. 
In the name of age before beauty, I'll start with Wayne Shorter. He grew up in the 1930s in Newark, New Jersey, in a neighborhood known as the Ironbound District. Ironbound District in Newark was another name for what is referred to as the neck. He said, where do you live? I said, I live down in the neck of Newark. A lot of steel workers in shipyards, you know, during, during the war. My father worked in the shipyards in a place called Crucible Steel. And um, they handled a lot of, uh, you know, molten steel and stuff like that, and cranes and, and uh, heavy work done in that area. And so something to be proud of. People would say, I'm from the Ironbound District. Was there music uh, in your house? Were your parents musical? No. They, they, my parents didn't uh, study any instruments or anything like that. But I remember my mother saying one thing, reason why she was attracted to my father when they, when they met, because he was light on his feet. And, and they, when they danced together. Very, I saw them dance. He's light, like uh, floating. And she would dance with a, a th three girls. They would put on a show at a dance or something, like that. and they, they were called the Silver Spoons. That's the, the closest thing uh, to music that I, I, you know, I heard about. But he liked listening to the radio, your dad, right? Oh, yeah. He would come home from work and sit in the chair while my mother was preparing the, and the dinner, and he would put on Martin Block's Maple Leaf Ballroom. It's Maple Leaf Ballroom time. Put all your cares away. All the bands are here to bring good cheer your way. On the weekends, Sunday, he put on, play um, Andre Costa, music a la mood, like music of Andre Castellanes. Our guest this evening is Perry Como, and we move into action with a set of waltzes from the Rogers Hammerstein operetta, Carousel. And uh, cowboy music, Western. He, so his, his taste went all over the place. I hear a little bit of Madame Butterfly and then Cowboy Country Western because my father was from Alabama, you know. My brother and I, we'd rush, rush home from school to hear on the radio, Terry and the Pirates, Superman, uh, Hop Harrigan, Ace of the Airways, Captain Midnight. The Skelly Oil Company presents Captain Midnight. We were there with them, falling off a cliff or something like that, <laughs> you know, and then Sound effects. We didn't. I didn't mouth the word sound effects, but we, we were waiting to hear, uh, hear and see through hearing. And as I as it went on, I found, discovered, or realized how talented the people were, who were imitating a lot of sounds vocally and with their hands and using other you know extensions and horse hooves and all that, and and wind. Rain. Esperanza Spalding was born 50 years after Wayne Shorter on the other side of the country in Portland, Oregon. It's very different than what you see on Portlandia, even though I love Portlandia. My Portland was a very interesting mix of factors and universes, actually. So I grew up in a very difficult neighborhood, you know, there was a lot of crime and a lot of just, a lot of addiction problems and just people who didn't have a lot of options in life. Okay, so my family grew up in that neighborhood and somehow at a really early age, I got connected to these music programs. And one of them was called the Culture Recreation Band, which was put together by these grown jazz musicians who had this idea that they could help kids in the neighborhood stay out of trouble if they could have a horn in their hand and be basically held accountable to show up every week at this place and know what they were supposed to know. So these were mostly kids from my neighborhood, you know, from similar uh, circumstances. She also got involved with the Chamber Music Society of Oregon, an organization that provided kids and older adults with free instruments and next to free classes and camps and weekly rehearsals, all with the purpose of keeping a flame alive for live chamber music. 
So that was my little world in music. And um, wow, that was a really amazing, now I realize, way to grow up. And I got into music when I was five. So I always was around this world of grown-ups making miraculous things happen and thinking that was just normal, <laughs> you know. What was your first attraction to music? Do you remember being really struck by a musical experience? Yep. The first musical experience that I really remember being struck by, I actually hated because it was bagpipes at the elementary school for some celebration. Now I appreciate bagpipes, but then to my little vulnerable, you know, new virgin ears, the sound was like, ah! Just to be honest, that was my first musical experience that I remember being very impacted by. And on the other hand, I remember hearing Yo-Yo Ma on television, on public television, and on Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. And I don't think I'd ever heard any sound like that before young-looking guy doing this thing that seemed just, I just didn't have any reference for it. It just was like the most amazing thing I'd ever seen. And right then and there, I decided I wanted to do whatever that is. I want to do that. Well, do you remember what Yo-Yo Ma was playing? One of the cello suites. I think the... All that. I think, but I could be wrong. It might have been... I don't remember. What music did you hear in the home? Uh, was your mom musical? Yeah. We had a Harry Belafonte Christmas album and a Stevie Wonder Christmas album and some Roland Hayes records. And I was allowed to listen to the classical station or the oldies station. I wasn't interested in the jazz station, although I probably could have listened to that. Um, so early years, that was the music. I remember hearing, making or asking my mom to, to keep out the Harry Belafonte and Stevie Wonder way beyond and way before Christmas. And a piano in the house that I would play all the time and write songs and try to, I would steal songs from the radio and pretend like I wrote them. <laughs> and um, that was kind of the musical scene, you know. Esperanza Spaulding told interviewer Gail Eichenthal that her mom never pushed her. She did connect her with great opportunities, but she was hands-off at the same time, which is to say she didn't make Esperanza practice. A real gift in hindsight. I've heard this expression that you can't be taught anything. You, you have to learn it yourself. Like People can guide you in the right direction and show you options, but... Only the individual can learn what it is to be learned. And in music, that statement, I think, is, is profoundly true because it really is your, it's your life partner for life. And I think even at a young age, it's really important to develop your own relationship to, to the study of music, to the practice, to the ingestion of this entity that will be what you live and breathe and love and hate and cry about and laugh about for the rest of your life. We could change the whole story of love. Same old play I'm getting tired of. No more acting these predictable roles. Just us leaving unconditional love. We could change the whole story. Esperanza Spaulding is filled with gratitude for her mother, and not only for facilitating her artistic development. Her mom was a single parent who struggled financially and then had to stop working altogether when Esperanza developed an autoimmune disorder that kept her home from school. Fortunately, with her mother's care and homeschooling, she eventually recovered, went back to school for a while, and got her GED at 16. You know... This is maybe a little out of place, but I just feel like it's important to say. I feel like my mom is the antidote to the myth of the welfare welfare mom and welfare babies. Because um, there may be individuals, and I'm sure there are out there, who really abuse um, social services. But I can say that 
we would have been homeless. We could not have survived without public assistance. And my mom is the hardest working person I know. I don't know how she raised two kids and uh, did everything. And she had her own health problems too. So I don't know how she did that. What kind of work did she do? Everything under the sun, you know, like college educated, but just, I don't know. Some people miss this boat and it's not that she's not smart. She's incredibly intelligent and incredibly hardworking and very honest. She has a lot of integrity. And not only all of that, she somehow found the time to kind of train her kids to be critical thinkers. So we never would just be sitting and like ingesting something from TV or from a magazine. She always would try to open our eyes to a counter commentary or a counter perspective. And I'm baffled that she's working sometimes two jobs and she herself went back to school so she's juggling all of this and being such an attentive teacher, really, to, to me. And um, so anyway, just, just to say that those welfare checks and food stamps and Section 8 literally saved our lives. How uh, incredibly heartening for her to see what you've accomplished yeah, in well, your the young part life. Is she's not worried about accomplishments. Like I, when I talked about the grammar, she's like, oh, neat. What is that? Anyways, um, I just got out this article from the newspaper I think you're really going to like. You know, she's, she's uh, not very concerned with how the dominant culture perceives your success. I think what really interests her is how we treat each other, you know. So I think she could actually care less how well I'm doing and more just how I'm doing and how I'm living on the planet, which is, of course, a lifelong project. <laughs> You're always trying to get yourself together. But, um, yeah, I, I had to really have a very one-in-a-million mom. Wayne Shorter, likewise, talked about the adults in his early life, his parents and others, who helped him correct course, and who also gave him the freedom to forge his own relationship to music. He attended the Arts High School in Newark, wanting to be a painter at first, but he wasn't crazy about what they were teaching in the academic classes. So I found myself skipping classes on the way to school and going to a theater. The theater was around, sort of around the corner, and uh, they, I got caught. Uh, of course, they were surprised because they, they knew I came from well, my family was, you know, well-dressed and uh, brought up very well. And they called me down to the principal's office, and my mother and father standing there, and they had all the forged notes that I wrote, the doctor's names and all that, sick notes. And they asked me, where did you go? Before we decided what, to do, what we were going to do with you, where did you go when you didn't come to school? And I said, to the theater. And he said, and said that, that theater had two mo motion pictures and a stage show. And he said, you, you like the lights and all that on the stage show? You like all that stuff? She, she was talking about the atmosphere. I said, yes. She got on the phone and called someone, and she called the head of the music department, uh, Achilles D'Amico. He came in, and later on I found he was re referred to as Toscanini. And they put me in his class, Music Theory One. And I kind of knew, because he was a disciplinarian, when I got in his class, all the bad guys, bad boys were <laughs> in that class. But I found out something. They were... They were all. They all had. Uh, they were talented. They had varying high IQs, you know. And uh, when he spoke, they listened. So one of them became a di diplomat. He was in that class. But uh, in that class, uh, Achilles D'Amico, because Mr. D'Amico said, he said music is going in three directions. 
and he had three records on his desk. The first one he held, he said it was a record by Ema Sumac from Peru, and she's the one, for people who don't know, she had the high, wide range, real like a bird, or way down lower than Louis Armstrong. And uh, the second one was The Rite of Spring by Igor Stravinsky. And the third one was a record by Charles Christopher Parker, Charlie Parker. And then he played uh, Mozart's G minor 40 symphony. And uh, that's the one. <laughs> and he was talking about that, and that's when I started to grasp music theory. Not the whole, and, and all, you know, but to, to get my teeth into it. There was like an excitement there. He was 15, and he decided he wanted to try playing an instrument. When I uh, skipped school and walked to the theater, next, before you got to the theater, there's a music store. And I got a tonette from that, uh, it cost a dollar or something like that. I got a tonette when I was 15. And um, this tonette, I would, you know, toodaloo on it. And my mother said when she wanted, wanted, when it's time to come home for dinner, she just opened the window and here, knew where I was by hearing. I was messing with this, you know, tonette. What is a tonette? It looked like a little submarine, and it's plastic then, <laughs> and it had eight holes in it. And I was going, just like that. And it didn't have a, 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 you have to make a half, close the hole halfway to make what you call like an accidental, a half tone. But um, to me, that was just playing and having fun. Uh, but I noticed in that music store, I was always looking at the clarinets. It, and the clarinets looked, you know, the, the silver keys really looked, uh, you know. But also the other horn, the trumpets, shiny instruments. And I said, I want a clarinet. And uh, my mother and grandmother uh, helped to get, it was a secondhand one, I got it. So was it immediately clear that you had a feeling for this instrument? Yeah, so it was, it was the instrument. When, when I heard the clarinet in orchestra, uh, I would hear the clarinet, and uh, later on I would, I would go to the library and start getting records of uh, Shahrazad. And, and I can see the clarinet and uh, night scene of the deserts and and somebody you know, adventures over the rooftops that night in a clarinet, lone, that lone sound. But you were, in a way, punished by being sent to music theory, and it turned out to be something you were very gifted at. Yes, the vice principal, she was talking with my mother and father, and by talking with them, she knew she was not speaking, she was speaking with people who really cared. So um, they, they put me in this class to have me minor in music and major in art, fine arts. And they want to see what happens. What happened was Wayne Shorter met Bebop. He heard it in class, he heard it on the radio, and he heard the older teenagers in the neighborhood, the street corner philosophers, as he called them, standing around trying to impress girls with their talk about jazz. They say, uh, yeah, Charlie Parker, Charles Christopher Parker, and um, Thelonious Monk, and they, they would say, this new guy, Miles Dewey Davis, he's, not, he's, he's cracking his notes on the trumpet. They're talking that kind of talk, and when I, I got near them, uh, they would kind of insinuate that I was too young to understand what they're talking about. You know, they would have this thing, uh, we're in the know. And a lot of people are not in the know. You might be one of them. So when I actually listened to, to what they were doing on the radio, uh, 
they were experimenting with the experimenting with the listening audience, and I had my uh, Rite of Spring record, which I kept over time from the library, and I had um, a Dizzy Gillespie's Big Band record, and I was listening to that. Charlie Parker, Thelonious Monk, uh, Bud Powell, the names, and the Sonny Rollins, all of them playing. I realized that I had stopped, weaned myself off the comic books and realized that these people became Batman. Charlie Parker, he became Captain Marvel and Superman, flying and moving. Then I go to the library and start getting books, reading what Beethoven was saying about his life in Chopin and the name George Sand, the, the nom de plume that the woman used to write novels. So all of this, until the library closed, they said, you, you have to go, everyone out. And I'm still on, laying on the floor reading. So I'm, you know, absorbing. I said, this, is this more to this, to this whole the musical and painting and everything. There's so a lot to this. So I knew I had to, to be a student all my life of this uh, thing called the creative process. A multitude of musical streams also took root in Esperanza Spalding. Her mind, her heart, and her ears have always been wide open. And that makes it hard, she says, to answer the kind of questions people often ask her about her influences. <laughs> I sort of feel like if you look at a human being, let's say somebody from, just to name any random place, um, Sicily. So you look at this human being and you say, like, I want to deconstruct your DNA. And you ask this person, like, you discover that there are some, like, for some reason, Russian ancestry. In some kind of way, there's Moorish ancestry. And then you discover there's some Northern Italian, let's say, I don't even know. There could be some German ancestry. And you ask this person, now, how does it feel? to be a part of all these cultures. And the person's gonna say, I'm Sicilian. And you go, yeah, but you have African and Russian and German and, and Italian. I mean, what's it like to have all these things coursing through your blood? And the person is gonna say, um, I'm Sicilian? You know, that whatever is that entity that in and of itself has grown through a long period of time in Sicily is inevitably the product over time of influences of, I'm not saying this is obviously not historically correct. I'm just saying that um, to a Sicilian, I'm, I'm a Sicilian. I'm a Sicilian if I'm Sicilian. And music, the same way that love between two human beings who end up in each other's path for an infinitely varied array of reasons, the love develops spontaneously and the product, that child in the life of the child develops spontaneously and is influenced by the next person that falls in love. And this infinite network of connections and relationships that we see on the planet of human beings and cultures, to me, is the natural evolution of music, too. And so I guess I want to say the music I make <laughs> is no more concerned about the Western classical influence or the uh, South American influence as the Sicilian is that we are doing the DNA study on to the Russian or the German. Only because when you live it, you're not conscious of the influences, like where it's coming from. And um, I almost feel like there's a fear of letting the doors just be open and say... I am obsessed with Shostakovich, and that doesn't uh, contradict or inhibit or um, nullify my love of um, TLC, <laughs> just for a random example. Uh, and if you grew up in that, I think organically what you start to hear, the same way that if one of your parents is Russian and one is Italian— you become this beautiful combination 
of these influences. And you're not like, oh, now I'm really acting Russian. Oh, now I'm really acting Italian. You, it's, you speak that way. You feel that way. You hear that way. You think that way. And I think especially for composers, in the age we live in now, where we are literally hearing sound and songs and different rhythms in movies all the time, there's no way you can only hear it as like a classical thing or a blah, blah, blah thing. I really feel like that is the future of music. You know, if you're if you're open to receive the palettes that are in this planet, you're always gonna have ideas. Esperanza Spaulding's musical education, which started in earnest when she was just a kindergartner learning violin, really gained velocity when she was offered a scholarship to study at Portland State. She was the youngest bass player they had ever had in the music program, and she had only switched to the instrument about a year and a half before. What they, what the teachers at PSU saw was potential, <laughs> because, <laughs> yeah, you, you just, there's only so much you can do in a year and a half. Obviously, I was coming from violin, so there's things that translate to the bass, but, um... The real superheroes, as far as I'm concerned, in music and what keeps music alive and evolving and moving forward and thriving and growing and expanding are those kinds of teachers like Ken Baldwin and Hamilton Chaffetz and many others, Daryl Grant, who were the people that um, had so much infinite patience <laughs> with my little wild character and supported and fed and nurtured and disciplined potential because that's all talent is it's not worth anything it's like uh having a pick and a hammer if you don't know where to dig for gold you just have some tools and not much to do with them which is to say that it, me being at that school wasn't so much about like yeah I only played for a year and a half and I got into PSU it was these teachers who saw something that could be cultivated and I still have a lot of work to do to cultivate what they saw but um, really just props to those teachers. The very prestigious Berkeley School of Music in Boston was the next stop for the education of Esperanza Spalding. It's a crossroads, really. You'd call it like a Silk Road or something, where you're going to run into everybody from everywhere doing everything. Everything from film scoring to electronic music to, uh, you know, gospel music. You have Korean classical music, traditional music. I mean, just anything you can dream of is happening there. And it's still out of the, an economic system. So you actually are willing to go play anytime for free. A lot of people are, which is something that's really hard to recreate once you get out of school. <laughs> um you know, part of what you're there for is to play all day long. So I know my experience isn't unique in that I cross paths and rub skin and rub ideas and exchange ideas with just hundreds of people from everywhere. Including members of the faculty who were some of the biggest names in contemporary jazz. Pat Metheny, Gary Burton, Patty Austin, Joe Lovano. She played professional gigs with all of them while she was still a student. It was school outside of school. Flipping back to Wayne Shorter now, he was also very young, also a prodigy, when he started attracting the attention of some greats. But that was in the 1950s when the music world and the world itself was a different kind of place. The civil rights movement was building steam, Jazz and improvisation were deeply connected to the idea of freedom. The music was becoming more rebellious, more liberated. As Wayne Shorter told interviewer Gail Eichenthal, he remembers a radio DJ comparing bebop to the sound of chickens fighting. He was all in. He hadn't even made it through high school 
when he had an offer to go on the road as a saxophonist with Sonny Stitt's band, but he turned it down because he was determined to finish high school and go to college to study composition. Then came a stint in the army. During a furlough, he sat in for three nights with Horace Silver, and at the end of the third night, somebody behind me tapped me on the shoulder. I said, yes. She said, um, my husband wants to meet you. And I turned around and said, your husband? It was John Coltrane. And I think the first thing he said was, you're playing that funny stuff like me. It's a, you're playing that in that funny area all over the horn like me. He said, come on up, come to my house. This, this. He said, I'm going to get together. So I went, you know, not that moment, but uh, later on I went to his house, his apartment, 103rd and Broadway. Um, and he, he started to, he had a piano, and he would um, put his foot on the sustain pedal and make what he called a cluster. <laughs> a sound like thunder and everything. And hold it down. And he asked me, see if you can find a face in there find the melodies and faces and, and all that. Then he asked me to do the same thing for him. That's what we were doing that trading. <laughs> we yeah. spent time doing that. And he had music on the, the piano, and the music was the first notes of Giant Steps. Coltrane told Wayne Shorter that he was leaving the Miles Davis Quintet, and he encouraged Shorter to take his place. Okay, and I just kind of waited, and I called Miles, and Miles, he said, who is this? I said, my name is Wayne Shorter. And uh, I, I just wondered if you wanted to, you know, needed a saxophone or something like that. And he said, if I want a saxophonist, I'll call. <laughs> then I said, okay. And then I waited. I knew it was going to like who's going to who's going to slam the phone down first. And we did together. <laughs> he finally he called, and um, I had just joined the Jazz Messengers, and they said, "You want to work with me? You want to play with me?" And I told them, "I just joined the Jazz Messengers, and I, I don't think I don't think anyone likes a, a Benedict Arnold." And he said, I know what you mean. When you're ready, let me know. I said, okay. I'm leaving again. <laughs> we just hung up at the same time. Wayne Shorter continued to play with Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers, but about a year later, Miles Davis showed up at the club where they were playing. He began wooing Shorter to join his new quintet to round out Herbie Hancock on piano, Ron Carter on bass, and Tony Williams on drums. And if you know even the littlest bit about modern jazz, you'll understand the earth-shattering significance of that lineup. Finally, it seemed Miles Davis and Wayne Shorter got their timing right. I called Miles, and I said, this is Wayne Shorter. He said, hey, Wayne. He said, are you ready? I said, yeah, come on. And so he sent me a first-class ticket and had a tuxedo made and... And I opened with him at that Hollywood Bowl in August. And first, you know, and the first thing he said to me in the dressing when I walked in the dressing room, I had a, a my horn, I had a rented horn. He said to me, "You know my music?" I said, "Yes." No hesitation. And he said, "Oh, like yeah, you think it's something, huh?" And when we started to play that night, he played one of their complex things, a song called Joshua. We played it, and we did the whole set. And in my hotel room, when we finished playing, the phone rings, and he says, we're going to record Monday. Right away. And so Herbie said he liked what he heard. 
you know, with uh, all of us together. And so that first album we did was called ESP. He, he asked, did I have any music? And I said, yeah. And he took out the music with when I wrote ESP. And he said, re-recorded the album, and he named it the album ESP. One time he said, uh, "You write." He said, "You write like Charlie Parker." And I said, "What do you mean?" He said, "It's all there. Everything is there." Because he was known, really. Anyone wrote, brought music, he would change things around. Take that out. We don't need to do that. Make some room here. And it would, you know, he would do that a lot. But uh, when I wrote something, he never touched it. And he, he meant that the, the, the sound, the story, it was like a short tune, uh, but uh, he had a lot of uh, doors. He could go to places. He wasn't, before he died, he called me again and asked me to write something, uh, a symphony orchestra. And he said, yeah, but something with strings and all that stuff in there. But hey, Wayne. Put a window in there so I can get out of there. Yeah, put a window in the string so I can get out. <laughs> I knew exactly what he's talking about. Well, that's such a great image because uh, I was going to ask you about writing jazz. You know, it's improvisation is obviously such a huge part of the music and those flights of fancy. And yet, you know, when you're writing, are you right? Are you anticipating that people are just going to take off into these sort of free zones? Um, how much is written out? How much isn't? I know it differs mm -hmm. for each piece, but are you thinking of your piece as kind of a template rather than a completed work? Actually, it's more more a template, and even if it's, even if it's complete. The, there's places that can be opened um, because I always like the idea that nothing is actually finished in life. It's nothing finished. I mean, so who says it's finished? Well, like when you die, isn't that sense? We don't even know. You know. So I'm, I'm, I've not, I haven't adopt, adopted this phrase, but this phrase has become a part of me. There's no such thing as beginning or end. spurs your creativity? Um, you, you became a composer early on. Mm -hmm. Where do you think that creative spark comes from? Hmm. Where does the creativeness? You know, it can be the residue of working consistently towards something you haven't been struck by yet. So you may be a poet that doesn't feel inspired but by going through the motion, so to speak, of the tools of your craft, this other, like, dark matter is generated that starts to take on a density and a form and a reality of its own. And then there's the type of creative spark that is literally just a spark in the dark and you don't know what caused it and you go searching for it. And the process of searching for it usually reveals a piece or a project or an idea. Um, I think of it like excavating ruins or fossils. And I think even that can be intuitive. Like, what if we dug here? Or you can do the research to discover, oh, if I dig here, there's going to be something. 
I know in my case, this feels really silly to talk about because it is not, it's so vast and nebulous and sort of globular at times, the feeling of an idea hitting you. It's really hard to grab the tail of a cloud, you know, and like, it looks like this, you know. That being said, sometimes I'll think of a title and then it's like a chain reaction, like blah, 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 blah. And then a whole song develops, like a slip of the tongue the other day, we were joking about hardened criminals and we said hardened subliminals. And then that we kept spinning off of what that could mean, hardened subliminals, what would that mean? And then it starts to bring up this imagery of like the prison of your mind where these subliminals that you haven't even been realizing were in there. You don't even know why they're in there in the first place or who sent them there, where they came from, and you don't know where to send them. <laughs> Anyways, and then that, you know, it just can go on forever. But many times a little thing over there turns on um, a whole world, kind of. It's like you didn't know that there was a switch that was connected to all this, and now it all starts to come alive and you just want to tell people what you saw in that toy store. You have to be willing to be receptive to those instincts, don't you? And try to follow through. I mean, like I said before, talent is not a quality in and of itself. It's a, actually, I'm sorry, it's a quality like tall or um, big lips or long fingers. It's a quality. It's not necessarily an advantage or of value in and of itself. So, yes, it's wonderful to see things that another person doesn't immediately see, but if you can't do anything with it, you're not an artist. I mean, it's still cool for you. Like, I have a great time just spinning little funny ideas off in my head all the time, but I feel like I want to <laughs> translate them into a tangible form that can be shared. Yes, I think it's very crucial to be receptive just in the world as an artist to sounds and images and ideas. And there's this thing called follow through where you take that thing as far as you can take it. And it may be a dead end, but the dead ends lead to something else too. The willingness to accept a failure and turn it into a success, that can be the most annoying thing ever. When you've spent all this energy creating something and you have this thing that's like, let's say it's a poem, and it's like, wow, it's eight verses, this is awesome. And then you put it down and you look at it a week later and you realize all the weaknesses in it. Or you realize that nobody understands what you're trying to say, but you like it. So my mom would always say, well, if you like it so much, um, paste it up on the wall, but don't leave it like that. You know, like if you love that line that you wrote or you love that visual that you made, great. Put it on the wall. But if you want this to be a consummate piece of art or a piece of work that other people can engage with, you got to improve it. It's like an editor, you know. You don't just hand out the 16 or let's say, I know it's way more, 300 hours of footage. You edit it and you re-edit it and you re-edit it and you check with your editor and you check with other viewers to see how your original idea is being translated. And I think that can be a really scary process for artists because it's like birthing this thing that nobody knew existed in the first place. So how can you tell me if it's not good enough? But there's also this inner viewer, this inner, more objective viewer that if we're willing to give it a voice, helps us become better editors. You know, the process is never over. The art is never over. And you're never over, because through your art, you're continually reinventing yourself and regenerating yourself. 
the concept of a muse, you know, comes to mind. And I, I remember reading in college about Shostakovich um, teaching a class, and uh, one of his students did not complete the assignment of doing the development section. And his excuse was, you know, you know, uh, Professor Shostakovich, I just, you know, <laughs> the muse didn't alight on my shoulder, and I, mm-hmm. I just didn't have the inspiration. And I think Shostakovich's answer was. I don't want to hear about your muse. Just write the development section. So, I mean, I think those of us on the outside tend to have a very romantic view of literally Mm -hmm. a muse, be it the bird of paradise or whatever, um, just coming into your world and giving you, you know, an idea. But I I, I gather it's not necessarily that simple. Two things of that. I don't remember which writer said this, but in an interview, a prolific novelist was asked, do you write only when you're inspired or do you write all the time? Like, do you wait for the muse or do you just, can you just kind of knock it out? You can just sort of spin it out. And he said, well, I do wait for the muse. I write when the muse comes, but fortunately she shows up like me every day at 9 a.m. And to me, I think the anecdote is actually much shorter than the way I just said it, but that sort of sums up the point and the way that I've convinced myself to keep at something when it doesn't seem like any fruits are are forming because that can happen you have a arranging project or an assignment you know or preparing for a gig or something that's very new and difficult and it can feel like you're doing the same thing and nothing is changing I mean, you know you're, do- you're able to do it faster now. Okay, I couldn't put that chord there as quickly, but it just doesn't seem like much is coming, especially with, with lyrics and poetry, because you know when the words are there and there isn't like a method to have great lyrics. And I always think to myself, well, if I were the muse and I had something really special that could only be translated through a human form, wouldn't I want to give it to the person who was most, you know, like agile and fit for the task you know like if you want to get this message to marathon you give it to a runner you wouldn't give it to somebody who doesn't run very often because you're not sure if they're going to make it so I think of if there is this kind of idea of a muse or whatever that could be you know the muse isn't going to waste all that gold on somebody who's not in shape so you want to be you want to be somebody, you want to be a good candidate for the muse to travel through. You know, the muse is whatever that is magic to travel through, you know. Where do you think your creative ideas come from? They come from uncreative ideas. Whittling them down? It comes from the same source. <laughs> you've, uh, you've talked about Beethoven struggling to write the Fifth Symphony or the Ode to Joy. It sounds like it was meant to be that way, but he made dozens of versions of that before he came up with the right one. Yeah, it was the other one, uh, the um, uh, Roca. Beethoven was struggling with uh, the, the thing, you know, we say, well, you know, the great uh, masters, there's music and art in the artist, Picasso, and all that. This, this comes right through them. It's this, it's this, uh, this is genius. And, and Beethoven was saying, uh-uh. This is sweat and pain and struggle. And when you haven't prepared sufficiently, when you haven't given the muse a long enough landing strip, you are destined to fall short. As a performer, that can sometimes mean public humiliation. I am grateful when that happens because it shows you more blatantly areas that you need to work on. You know, that's the greatest gift, oh my God, for an artist to have. You know, you that part of you that is hungry to grow can atrophy if you always feel like you're on top, you know, because then where are you going to go? But getting your butt kicked and really getting embarrassed and like, ooh, I need to work on that. Being willing, I guess, to recognize that that's what's going on. I feel like that is the greatest gift you could have as a grown professional musician. Because once you're out of school, nobody's going to come up and tell you, like, that was sad. <laughs> Unless you're in a couple of clubs in New York you know, there's this place that, ooh, I haven't played in many years, but sometimes I go down there, it's called the Fat Cat, and it's this weird place with 
ping pong tables and it's just very bizarre but there's always a jam session happening and one night this piano player is down there playing he's playing you know and he's taking a solo and this guy is sitting next to him like mm-mm mm-mm you ain't doing it for me so he's like he's focusing he's trying to like block this guy out and he's like man mm-mm sad you know commenting commenting finally the guy stops he's like man give me a break I mean is that really necessary and the guy heckling him says, well, don't get mad at me. You're the one playing all that crap, you know. <laughs> that's rare, though, because usually what starts to happen is you, you start living in a bubble. And the more, the better you're doing, the bigger the bubble becomes. So you, the further you have to go to have some real, a real interface with a musician who's really going to be straight with you or a listener who's going to be straight with you. And that's a gift because, as I'm sure we know from other fields, when somebody doesn't think you have any potential, they don't say anything. It's like the opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference, right? So if somebody is taking the time and the energy to be mad at you or, or get on your case, that's a really good sign, I think, that there's something, there's more to dig out. How did it come about that you started teaching at Berkeley at, at the age of 20, the youngest teacher they ever had? That surprised me, too. When the president asked me to come in and teach, I just thought I must be feeling some demographic that <laughs> is needed here in the teacher roster. But that's not totally true. And that's a really humbling and inspiring situation I recommend for any musician. Because I feel like it's an extension of performance cause, and composition and poetry because you're trying to take a very abstract thought, if you think about it. How can, I, how can you get from not being able to do something to doing it in a way that you, dear 18-year-old from Tallahassee or whatever, will be able to use? And the evidence is going to show up next week. And that you'll feel inspired to use. Oh, it's challenging. That was a really big gift and a great lesson that I'm just really realizing now is an extension of performance. I mean, you're kind of trying to turn on a similar um, electrical field, so to speak, when you're performing. It's like, I want you to get this. You also have really pointed out the creativity in teaching. Oh, my. Oh, my. Great teachers are the most creative. Absolutely. Absolutely. I still remember... <laughs> I still remember uh, one day, this is just very poetic. I mean, it's also funny, but Ken Baldwin, bless his soul, may he rest in peace, was uh, my bass teacher at Portland State University. And one week we all came in and we hadn't practiced anything. I don't know why. It must have been a good party that weekend or something. And this is a very serious and consummate bass player who, you know, has better things to do than sit in a classroom with a bunch of little snot-nosed 20-something-year-old and one teenager who didn't work on what he said. So and he just says, have you ever had a puppy? We're going like, hmm, this is an interesting way of being reprimanded. And you know, it's just so sweet and you're just so sweet to it and you feed it and you give it water and then it pees on the carpet and you just want to kick it, but you can't. You know you can't. <laughs> I don't know. We, I mean, that went straight to the heart, you know, just, oh, so whatever. My point is, I don't know of another way he could have expressed that thought in a nonviolent way. And I promise that was the last week we ever didn't go shed. And I'm sorry to put all your business out there, Mr. Baldwin, but um, that's to me a very beautiful and poetic example of the creativity. And, <laughs> and you know what's ingenious about that? The means that were needed at that moment to get us to the next level weren't musical and they weren't technical. It was philosophical. I mean, it was it was like psychological, sorry. You know, and that's actually part of, I think, I feel like the greatest teachers I've had are like part psychologists. <laughs> you have to kind of understand what's going to reach this person and and help bring out what's in there. In the fall of 2017, Esperanza Spalding became a professor of practice in the music department at Harvard. So she's getting the chance to employ all those techniques she's learned from her wonderful teachers. Wayne Shorter was never exactly Esperanza Spalding's teacher in the traditional classroom sense, but he has taught her 
a great deal, and he's been an inspiration. And she's inspired him too. At the Academy of Achievement Summit in 2014, where these interviews took place, Gail Eichenthal asked Wayne Shorter to talk about Esperanza's music. What makes it special is that she doesn't compromise. Uh, she doesn't let a false notion of what a voice is supposed to sound like uh, or a, a story is supposed to be like. Uh, and I said to myself, I haven't seen anyone, a lady, close to being a female Miles Davis. <laughs> but she might be it. Yeah, but I don't want to lock her in, you know, myself, you know, into, into that. She's, she is herself. Uh, she is, she's not going to be this person and that person, without naming names and, and uh, somebody, but she does realize she does know what it means to have stood on, on the shoulders of giants that came before her. She knows the value of Billie Holiday. And uh, for Esperanza to, to, to be special and mysterious, she won't stay in her place and be like, Totally identifiable label, you know. And she plays the bass and, and sings something that goes against it. I mean, really sings something that goes, that's really uh, moves around and complex. Most people who play an, an, an instrument, a string instrument, and sing, they sing something that's parallel to the movement of their fingers. <laughs> one time I asked, when she's doing one of those shows and, and night shows, and she did one complex thing. She played the, the Fender bass and was singing something that was totally like patting your stomach and rubbing your head. That was, I said, Mr. Ronza, how do, you, how do you feel when you're doing that? She said, scared to death. <laughs> Jazz is a, it's a part of um, the trail less trodden. The, trot, the trail that's most trodden is crowded. And it's scripted because they they're following the formula. And jazz is talking about being fearless and courageous. Then, then we have to do that in every part of our lives. Do not be afraid of the unknown. You've said um, jazz means I dare you. Right. Esperanza and I were talking about the word faith. What is faith? And I said, well, I like this one. I said, faith is to fear nothing. Fearless jazz legend Wayne Shorter. In 2015, he was given the Grammy Award for Lifetime Achievement. Esperanza Spalding was named Best New Artist in 2011 and won her second Grammy in 2013 for Best Jazz Vocal Album. We're going to end this episode with Esperanza Spalding performing live in 2014 at the Academy of Achievement Summit. I'm Alice Winkler, and this is What It Takes. Silent stones, I live the bones of the man who came before me. Painted hands long gone, still carry on through the rock of people's story. Iron and glass may well have last my time in the memory of me. I clap and sing for my song to ring through the heart of my people's story. What will our story be? Amidst these buildings and monuments, crumbling accomplishments will be surely returning to dust. Something must carry
Takes is made possible with funding from the Catherine B. Reynolds Foundation. Thanks for listening. Silent stones that live the bones of the men who came before me. Ancient hands long gone still carry on through the rock of people's story. Iron and glass may well outlast my time in the memory of me. I clap and sing for my song to ring through the heart of people's stories.